Welcome to the 278th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome public health researcher Steph Tan and epidemiologist Ann Wiley and Orchid Alicock to COVID Calls to discuss COVID-19 saliva tests. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. We're getting a number of suggestions lately in many different topic areas in sciences, social sciences, and media studies. Please keep those suggestions coming. As of today, May 18th, 2021, there are 3,392,649 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll from COVID-19 in the United States is reported as 586,471 lives lost. As of today in Brazil, 436,862 have perished from the disease. And Germany reports 86,870 deaths from COVID-19 as of today. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, Linda Love, crossing guard with a maternal streak, dies at 79. This was written by Alex Traub, appeared in the New York Times, May 4th, 2021. And Linda Love worked hard enough at her job on an auto assembly line to afford a Jeep Grand Cherokee, she procured a license plate that read overtime. With the birth of her fifth grandchild, she found another license plate message to broadcast, five grands. Her Instagram handle combined the two ideas, overtime granny was her Instagram handle. And the athletic grandson she helped raise had a football or basketball game or track meet, she was there. She did not just play a Super Mario Brothers video game with a granddaughter. She also learned some of the game's unadvertised cheat codes. Her maternal instincts extended to the children she watched over as a crossing guard for the students of Frat Elementary School and Starbuck Middle School in Racine, Wisconsin. She handed out candy. The young students reciprocated. On Halloween, they gave candy back to her. Ms. Love died on April 21st at a hospital in Racine. She was 79. The cause was COVID-19, said Lakeisha Wingard, one of the five grands. Linda Louise Love was born on November 21st, 1941 in Memphis. When she was six, her family moved to Minneapolis. Her father, Fred, had been a railroad porter, but after the move, he became a sanitation worker. Her mother, her mother Irma Love, was a homemaker. Linda graduated from Minneapolis North High School in the late 1950s. In 1961, she gave birth to a son, Terrence, from a brief relationship and found herself a single parent. She worked at assembly lines for the Fannie Farmer Candy Company and the Honeywell Conglomerate. 
1963, she gave birth to a daughter, Teresa. Miss Love followed the example set by her parents and in 1970 moved in search of opportunities. She left Minneapolis for Kenosha, Wisconsin and began working at an American Motors manufacturing plant there. When Teresa gave birth to a son, DeAndre Jenkins, in 1988, Miss Love threw herself into helping raise him. She stood a later shift on the assembly line to spend time with DeAndre, while Teresa went to her secretarial job in the morning. She still came home in time to cook the family dinner most nights. She stayed at American Motors after it was bought by Chrysler in 1987, retiring in 2000. Shortly after Ms. Jenkins started college in 2006, she began occupying her time by serving as a crossing guard. In addition to Ms. Wingard, Ms. Love is survived by her daughter, three sisters, Adele Brown, Virginia Thomas, and Sherry Gardner, a brother, Robert Love, four other grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. Terrence, her son, died of heart failure in 2017. During the last years of her life, Ms. Love suffered from dementia, but Mr. Jenkins' twin daughters, born in 2017, never registered anything unusual about their great-grandmother. They exchanged silly faces with Ms. Love and jumped around in her lap. Ms. Love let the girls play games on her cell phone, breaking their father's strict rules about electronics, as long as they were snuggling with her at the same time. They were always the bright spot that took her mind off anything else she was worrying about, Mr. Jenkins said of his daughters. They would always have all of her attention. Okay, I'd like to turn to our discussion for today, and let me introduce my guests to you. I'm really pleased to have these guests here to talk about new research with all of us. Orchid Alicock is a postdoctoral research associate at Yale School of Public Health with Drs. Nathan Grubau and Daniel Weinberger. Previously, she received postdoctoral training at the Mailman School of Public Health, Columbia University, where she gained an interest in translational science and diagnostic development. Currently, she works on development and optimization of saliva-based diagnostics with Saliva Direct. Steph Tan is a research assistant and an incoming Master of Public Health student at the Yale School of Public Health, concentrating in social and behavioral sciences. She's also a Cornell University alum. Last year, Steph pushed for COVID-19 saliva testing in her home country of New Zealand, where she's currently based. Alongside head researcher, Dr. Ann Wiley, she is now facilitating the implementation of it by collaborating with New Zealand government leaders. And my third guest is Dr. Ann Wiley. Ann is an associate research scientist in epidemiology at Yale University. She's credited with pushing forward on the use of saliva as a superior sample for creating high quality, low cost SARS-CoV-2 testing. Her paper on the subject attracted support by the NBA led to the development of technology that has enabled others to make positive, possible, frequent testing in kids in school and enabling professional sports to continue competition safely. The use of saliva as an alternative sample type can alleviate many of the bottlenecks encountered in the mass testing strategies required to control continuing outbreaks. We're going to talk about that and more here on COVID Calls today. Thank you, Anne, Steph, and Orchid for joining me on COVID Calls. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where everyone is calling in from and tell us what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Orchid, can I start with you on that, please? Oh, sure. Um, 
well, Anne and I, we are based in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, the situation with the pandemic, I, I will pass that on to Anne, actually. Um, to find details, I try, it's very depressing to think about and working directly with the virus, I, I try to preserve my mental space. Oh, I can so appreciate I that. So I must admit, I don't track it every day, um, but I, I try to stay abreast as much as possible. And you're also in New Haven? Yeah, I am. So, you know, New Haven did really well very early on in the pandemic. We went into quite a lockdown, so cases did go you know, we got quite low cases quite early on. Of course, like everyone else in the US, we did start seeing a second wave come in. Um, cases are on the decline again. We have a really high uptake of vaccination, which is really promising. But at the same time, um, they're, I think, May 19th, they're removing all final restrictions. So I'm really curious to see how things are going to be affected once everything really reopens and who remains cautious and those who just sort of try to return to normality as soon as possible. What about vaccination availability? Is it on demand there? Yeah, it's really great. So it's um, open to everyone at the moment. There's been really high uptake. I think, you know, you could just about walk in anywhere now and get one because um, I think mostly those who are willing to take it as soon as possible have. And so now they're just trying to encourage as many more as possible to take it as well. And since we're talking about the situation there at Yale um, with Orchid and Anne, what about on campus? Students are... I guess it's, you know, it's almost summer now, but students are back. You're planning to have students back. The labs are open. Everybody's there. Or are people still working remotely? Orchid, let me ask you that first. Um, as far as I know, um, those that can work remotely are still work working remotely. Um, but labs have come back to full capacity at this point in time. Um, I think they decided after the vaccine rollout was so successful, they thought it was okay to lift some restrictions at Yale. So I think we've gone down from orange threat level to yellow, I think. So things are opening back up. Hmm. Steph, let me turn to you on this initial question just to find out where you're calling in from and what situation is there. Yes, sounds good. I'll quickly just add on to the Yale discussion. I know that student-wise, they expect all of us on campus to be vaccinated for the fall. So they're trying to have it mostly in person. So that's upcoming. And in terms of where I am now, I'm currently in New Zealand. I was actually in Ithaca early last year when everything started to escalate. And so I moved to New Zealand immediately. And we're really fortunate here. Anne's actually a New Zealander, as you can probably hear from her accent. And we, us in New Zealand, we are so privileged in the sense that we are, are geographically isolated island. We have a really small population of about 5 million people. And we were able to observe how other countries' COVID cases were unfolding while we had all that time. So we shut our borders really quickly after we saw that everything was starting to rise overseas. And that gave us time essentially to figure out what we needed to do. And in terms of vaccinations now, because we barely have any cases here, we any case that we do get here, it's imported from overseas and they enter this quarantine system that we have where they stay in a hotel, for two weeks and they're tested frequently and then they can come back out. 
And in terms of vaccination, we haven't needed it as urgently as other countries. So we've just recently started offering it to vulnerable populations in which there's an area full uh, called South Auckland that has more low-income families and now they can have access to the vaccine. But towards the end of the day, if uh, not enough families have come, they ask anyone else who's wanting the vaccine to come. So that's only just started recently. It has just been rolled out to healthcare workers and border workers for the last month. You know, it's fascinating you're describing this um, expatriate return yeah, in a sense, you know, you, you came back at the beginning of the pandemic. Is that a trend? I mean, do you, you know have other family or people you know who kind of rushed back to New Zealand at the early days of the pandemic? I had some friends who were in New York who came to New Zealand around the same time as me. And mm. then I had other people come back later on where they started the hotel quarantine system. So they had to stay in a hotel for two weeks and get tested frequently. But when I came back, the only measure that was existing was a home self-isolation measure. So I would just leave the airport and go. I stayed in an Airbnb with my partner for two weeks and we just didn't see anyone. But it was nothing strictly implemented at that time. Well, it sounds like a sort of a great national homecoming. I think we'll be looking a lot at the case of New Zealand as we try to figure out how countries can do better than the United States. Well, thank you all for sharing that um, initial sort of orientation as to where you are. We have a lot of research to talk about uh, today. Steph, I'm going to start with you. You're part of a research uh, group. Not all of you are here today, but many of you are. Thank you in advance for all of your time and, and educating me and others on this. You have a new uh, paper that just came out in April. In uh, Maybe you can tell us a little bit about it, Steph. The title is Saliva as a Gold Standard Sample for SARS-CoV-2 Detection. Yes, absolutely. So I know it's a bold title, but it essentially is what it is. That Gold the- standard. You didn't hold back, did you? That's I like that. <laughs> Well, actually, we were more conservative on the title before. We were saying it could possibly challenge the standard, the gold standard. But then we had to shorten the title and it was changed to just saliva as a reliable sample type. But I just we believe it's so much more than reliable. And so absolutely, we just went for the money shot and said it was the gold standard. And it's more so saying that the gold standard quickly defaulted to the nasopharyngeal swab. And that didn't leave room for the fact that other sample types could be just as viable and much more accessible and comfortable and of high efficacy. It just led to everyone believing that there had to be just only one sample type. And obviously that led to a lot of supply chain issues and a myriad of other issues in which the nasopharyngeal swab, it has to be collected at close contact. And that requires a lot of PPE, requires training and specialized healthcare workers to be able to extract the virus from the swab. And saliva, in fact, it can be done at a distance where you can have someone drool into a tube. It doesn't require the same specialized materials, so it's cheaper. And you don't require as trained healthcare workers. And so that frees up those healthcare workers for the vaccination efforts right now. So tons and tons of benefits of saliva testing. And we needed a bold title to attract the fact that it's crazy that this isn't being used as frequently as it should be and that there is an urgency to question more than one sample type. I wonder if um, maybe, Anne, I'll turn to you, if you could sort of tell us a little bit about the other options. Steph mentioned the nasopharyngeal swab, which has seemed to become the kind of 
standard internationally, and I want to talk with you all also about why that happened. But what are the options, just sort of starting basically, if you wanted to diagnostic infection testing, what's, what's out there? Well, we're looking at a few different swabs. So you've got the nasopharyngeal swab, which is mostly now just used in the clinic. Um, the nasal swab has picked up a lot of popularity as well. So, I mean, that's an interesting one as well, because historically for other infections, the nasal swab is also, it is known to be less sensitive than the nasopharyngeal swab. But for some reason, that was... Um, you know, really well received, really quickly, very few people questioning it, um, unlike, you know, the challenges that we've had with saliva and getting that's recognition as a sample type. Um, I do believe that some places are still doing oropharyngeal swabbing, um, and then you're having sort of just other options explored. Just, you know, I think, I think the main thing that we saw is that very early on in the pandemic, when you only had one sample type, you know, we saw an absolute collapse of the supply chains. It was near impossible to get nasopharyngeal swabs. Um, we were scrambling to find any options. We were looking to 3D print our own. We were making vials of our own viral transport media because we couldn't get that from anywhere. And, you know, it just really shows if you have too much reliance on one thing, just then no one can get access to testing. And I think it's just really important that we do keep in mind other options. And, you know, in the end, a test is better than no test um, most of the time. And so that we do need to have these supply chains. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be swabs or saliva. It's, you know, there's a place for all of them. And I think it's really important, especially when we have massive outbreaks, massive, you know, resurgence in cases, um, we just really need to get everything that we can just to help the situation. Orchid, just to bring you in on on this, is it the case that saliva um, tests were just not as well known as nasal pharyngeal swabs? I guess I'm just trying to reconstruct a little bit as to why there was such sort of closure so quickly around the nasal pharyngeal swab instead of other options. Well, historically for upper respiratory tract infections, um, that is the sample type that is used for diagnostics. And so that's why we quickly defaulted to the nasopharyngeal swab when it came to this particular infection, because they use it for the original SARS. Um, and I think they also use it for influenza, et cetera. And so that's the reason why they defaulted to nasopharyngeal swabs initially. And as far as I know, the WHO regulations still state nasopharyngeal swabs as the sample type. So that, so of course, caused a collapse in the, in the supply chains, if you think about it. I wasn't aware. So WHO actually, um, among the many things it does, it actually um, sort of decides or it sort of gives guidance on the, the preferred type of diagnostic test. Yes, um, they give mm. clinical recommendations. Uh, might not matter as much to the U.S., but I'm from Barbados. And as far as I know, in the Caribbean, we follow the WHO through um, PAHO, basically. So I think there and throughout the Caribbean, that is the sample choice. That's the sample type of choice, sorry. I see. So the WHO's decision to give that guidance early on also had a had a major role to play here, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Because at, at that point in time, nobody knew anything. So we were right. just looking for guidance in general. Steph, let me just bring you back in on, on this just in terms of the kind of research that you have. And I don't know how much of this is already sort of um, been peer-reviewed or if it's more sort of anecdotal, but understanding how people perceive the differences between different kinds of 
different kinds of tests. I'm sort of trying to understand again why early on the nasal pharyngeal swab became the standard and, and the saliva test isn't. Did that have anything to do with people's willingness to be tested, their, their sort of sense of whether or not it's effective, people's sense of whether or not they want to undertake a certain kind of test? Uh, I'm happy to pass this on to Anne, actually. She'll be the expert on this. <laughs> sure. Help us understand human behavior in this context, Anne. Sure. So I've actually been working with saliva as a sample type for the last 10 years, and I can tell you throughout the last 10 years it's been really hard to shift the conversation on accepting saliva um, for clinical diagnostics. And majority of the time, I mean, saliva is just not a traditional sample type. Um, in recent times, actually, if you go back to very early research that was done in the early 1900s, saliva was the sample type of choice. And somewhere about the antibiotic era, the nasopharyngeal swab appeared. If anyone can find, like, need some robust evidence on why that happened and the advent of it and how, you know, it's something to do, I think, with, you know, they thought antibiotics cleared everything out. We didn't need a test anymore. And suddenly the swab came out and that became sort of the gold standard. Saliva is difficult to work with. Well, it can be difficult to work with if you don't have good, clear instructions. And so your viral transport media is much more like working with water. It's very easy. It's the same as what you also get on like oral pharyngeal swabs. So it's a lot easier to process in the labs. People who are working in labs are familiar with it. They know how to work with it. And saliva just takes a little bit more processing, a little bit more getting used to, but once you know how to process it, it's, it's really no hassle. But the fact that it's not a traditional sample type, and a lot of also what Orchid mentioned is that, you know, it's not something that was recommended by um, WHO. It's also taking a lot to get um, sort of brought into the conversation with the CDC, for example. So there's been limited overall guidance, and there's been a lot of hesitation from the clinical labs. Um, some have been obviously very ready and willing to jump in there and just try to find any other solution to help. But, you know, a lot of clinical labs, they've got their processes in place, you know, they don't really want to take on the time, effort. And first of all, like in the middle of a pandemic, when it's really first started, I don't blame them. You know, you're just, again, you're trying to respond and give it your all. You're overwhelmed with testing. I can imagine bringing in a new sample type and trying to work out your workflows to deal with that. But, you know, in many places now, we do have the um, opportunity to see how other labs have dealt with it, to learn from that. And especially what Steph's paper really highlights is if you look at all the studies that have been done out there, there's some that have got really, really great results from working with saliva. And those are the studies that we need to be looking at and replicating their methods. If you do that, you're going to get good results, you know. Um, and I think this will be really, there's just, you know, there's just still so much discussion about it rather than, you know, an acceptance that, we need to look at the methods that do really work. And if you apply those methods, this can be a great sample type to, you know, really alleviate a lot of the testing challenges in many situations. A reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about saliva testing for COVID-19 today with Steph Tan, Orchid Alicock, and Ann Wiley. Orchid, let me turn to you because in the middle of all of this, and somehow I don't know how you've had time to do this, but you've started a, um, a 
company. I guess that's how we describe it, Saliva Direct. Um, could you talk to us about that? I think maybe you're still Sorry. muted. Or, yes, yeah. that probably should be directed towards Anne because I actually only joined Saliva Direct in October. Um, well into the development of Saliva Direct. So that is an Anne question. Okay, October is about 10 years ago now, right? So it, it, <laughs> it must feels be, that way. It, it does feel that way. Well, thank you for that. Um, Anne, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks. So I think, first of all, I'd just like to say that we're not actually a company. Um, what Saliva Direct is, is actually a test. And if anything, we're more a public health driven mission. So very early on. So I mean, we identified the potential of saliva in April last year, sort of April, May, we started developing Saliva Direct. We saw how expensive test prices were. We knew how many people couldn't get access to testing because it was either those who had symptoms or those who could afford it. And knowing how much reagents and lab costs are, we knew that there was no reason why tests should be as expensive as they are. So um, together with Nathan Grubar, we went up, we decided to set out to develop a test that could be more flexible, be more simple, streamline the process, get the prices down. And yeah, we developed Saliva Direct, which is still a PCR-based method. It has equal sensitivity to the CDC's own PCR-based assay. Um, but we are now just working to try and roll this test out to other labs. We, you know, we continue, well, actually, especially what ORCID has been instrumental for is the ongoing validation and optimization of this test and um, you know just trying to help other labs get up and running with that so the public health mission being that we don't actually charge anything for our agreements our licensings we don't make royalties from any of the companies it's just that we have this protocol that works and we'd like to get others on board just to help them take on saliva testing let me just stay with this and for one second so um just so i understand that nasal pharyngeal swabs um are there Patents or proprietary technology involved there? I mean, is that, you know, in terms of cost, thinking about if we wanted to adopt a particular kind of testing protocol and ramp it up to scale, um, is the saliva testing going to be less expensive? Um, it depends on your workflow. So we did remove the RNA extraction step. And so that is the most cumbersome, the most cost um the most costly part of the whole extraction process or the whole testing process. So we removed that um, to bring it down. And I think what you said about, you know, you can just adopt any method and ramp it up. And that's the thing, unfortunately you can't. There's a lot of EUAs for testing out there, but they're company specific, they're lab specific, um, or, you know, we were the first, we were, when our EUA was awarded, it was described as the most unique EUA that the FDA has issued to date. And that's because we aren't selling anything. We aren't producing anything, we're not making anything, we're not distributing anything, all we have is the method. And we are able to share this method and get other labs to actually do the testing for us and ramp it up themselves. And um, until recently, there haven't been any other EUAs like that that have just allowed the sort of open sharing of knowledge and um, mm. yeah, just this really open sort of science approach to it all. Okay, well, thank you for that clarification. Orchid, let me turn to you and talk a little bit more about the research that's been coming out. Um, of your lab and your research collective, there was a paper that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in September, uh, and the um, idea there was that saliva can be as sensitive or even better than nasal pharyngeal swabs for SARS-CoV-2 testing. Can you talk about that paper and the sensitivity issue in a little bit more detail? So, 
I must admit, uh, when I I didn't take part in that particular study. However, when I read it, I was surprised. We discovered that saliva that SARS-CoV-2 is very stable in saliva and can exist up to seven days at room temperature in saliva. It can withstand shipping temperatures of fluctuation temperatures of like 50 degrees down to minus 18 degrees. Um, it is incredibly robust in saliva. Um, and I can kind of understand why labs are a little bit surprised and hesitant to adopt it because I must admit I myself was a little bit hesitant until I ran the experiments myself and I realized how robust it actually was. Um, they also at that point in time compared the performance of saliva to nasopharyngeal swabs in I think a hospital setting and we found that it was just as robust. One of the advantages that I, well, one thing I find as an advantage is that saliva tends not to pick up what people call historical cases. When I mean historical cases is there are a few select individuals who will continue shedding nucleic acid for prolonged periods of time they actually might not, the virus might not be actively replicating in their system, but they still continually shed. And at this point in time, and definitely back then, you would have to have several negative tests to be cleared from quarantine. And so there are instances where people remained in quarantine for weeks on end. And one thing saliva does do is that it, it tends not to pick up those cases which is good because then people can go back out to work when they need to get back out. Because it doesn't mean that they are infectious. It just means that they're shedding nucleic acid. And this is picked up by the nasopharyngeal swabs, but it's not by saliva. That's a, that's a really interesting and important detail. I wonder, I mean, is, is that a limitation of the nasopharyngeal swabs that people just weren't aware of? Or again, that's just an, um, an, a, something that's related to the fact that that's the technology that became sort of the standard for understanding COVID-19. I mean, th to have that higher sensitivity to allow people to get back to work more quickly seems, and to school seems to have been, should have been a desirable trait from the very beginning. Orchid, let me give you that question first, and then I'll give everybody a chance to talk about that. Well, I think as, as Anne said, she's had experience working with saliva, but when I did some research, the FDA actually hadn't approved any saliva testing. I think maybe 2019 was the first time that they actually approved a saliva-based test. And this was a saliva swab for psychomegalovirus, basically. And so at this point in time, it, it just was not something that was researched. Because if you don't know what you're doing when it comes to processing these samples, then you can have a, a difficult time and you might not get the desired results. And what I think the biggest point of Steph's paper is that once we have, uh, once we have protocols in place, saliva 
can be just as easy or even easier to do with than nasopharyngeal swabs. Steph, let me just bring you in, give you a chance to comment on any, any part of that. Yeah, sure thing. So the question you asked about the sensitivity, how nasopharyngeal swab was seen to be as sensitive, and you're wondering, is this an issue? Did people know that those infections that weren't active and were historical, did people know that the swabs were catching those and prolonging quarantine unnecessarily, and then having people perceive that they were still COVID positive, even though it was just remnant virus. And yes, people actually were aware, but the reason why it was so hard to create awareness of that was because that positivity contributed to sensitivity data. And so part of what we highlight in our paper is that the high sensitivity of swabs in some papers relative to others, a lot of people will look at that and say, okay, clearly the nasopharyngeal swab is the most sensitive method, but actually it could have just been higher because of those historical cases. And we're saying how saliva sensitivity could look lower, but actually it may be just more accurately gauging those active cases. And that's actually a really positive aspect of that testing. I mean, I just have to follow up with a really basic question here. So go slow with the historian on this, but does that mean that we, if we had it to do over again and we'd been using saliva testing from the beginning, we'd actually have a different epidemiological picture of the development of the virus in the United States or other places around the world, Steph? Absolutely, it could. Yeah, it potentially could have looked really different. And so that is a really interesting question. And I wonder if that could have more accurately gauged the situation and how long infection lasts. And I feel like that's something we're still discovering as we're using these different test samples. So yeah, emerging research definitely looks further into that. Let me just, Anne, let me bring you in as I was uh, preparing for this and doing a little background reading, I saw that somehow your name popped up in partnership with the NBA. And I thought, well, the NBA, that must be some sort of epidemiological group I'm not <laughs> familiar with. I was thinking it was like, I don't know, Nebraska Board of Ad Advisors or what is NBA? And then I, it's like National Basketball Association. Okay, so you've got to explain this to all of us because that's not a combination we might have expected. I don't think any of us expected that either. It was, it was actually, we just had our sort of um, anniversary of the email that we got one year ago from Robbie Seeker from the, um, he's the VP of Health at the Timberwolves. So, you know, very early on, I mean, we knew, I mean, this is why also why we also developed Saliva Direct is that we realised that we were going to need to have frequent repeat testing as we reopened, you know, healthcare workers, um, so many situations, you know, look at the schools now. And, of course, uh, Robbie was also diving into research and he also knew that we we're going to need to have frequent repeat testing. And what we all were on the same page on is that nasopharyngeal swabs were not at all ideal to have, you know, and I'm not sure if you've had a nasopharyngeal swab, but, you know, having one of those every two or three days was not going to be pleasant for anyone. Um, you know, we we're already seeing testing aversion as it was. And so Robbie did um, came across our early, uh, so the preprint in the New England Journal of Medicine of the paper, that was a preprint um, in late April. And he came across that. And yeah, he just, he recognized that saliva also seemed to be a solution for frequent repeat testing. So he dropped us an email and we started having sort of weekly calls with um, various people at the National Basketball Association and deciding what we could do to, you know, develop a faster, streamlined, affordable test. I mean, one of the other things that they really wanted was to support a public health mission. You know, they could 
you know, the National Basketball Association could probably pay to have whatever testing they wanted, but they decided to support Saliva Direct in its development because they really um, uh, supported our mission to make testing more accessible. So we partnered with the National Basketball Association to validate Saliva Direct in asymptomatic individuals. So Saliva Direct was down there at the bubble in Orlando. It was um, playing a role in the lead up to the bubble in Orlando. So the players and staff were already having very routine testing. They were having paired anterior narrow swabs and oral swabs that were put into the same tube and they were being tested by the big reference labs. And then they were providing us a saliva sample to um, test by Saliva Direct. So we were receiving hundreds, well, our lab was receiving hundreds of saliva samples from the NBA every day for Saliva Direct testing. And you know what we saw with that is we tested something like 3,800 saliva samples. Um, I mean, everyone's heard the success of the bubble, so we had very few positives actually come up. But we did see really good agreement with the um, the positive cases that the swabs detected. And really importantly, it allowed us to show that we didn't have an issue with um, you know, poor specificity. We didn't see evidence for um, false positives. We also saw very reliable detection, so we didn't have we barely had, I think we had 12 invalid samples or something like that. So showing that, you know, saliva could be really reliable. It was really easy to collect from them. So yeah, we've been working together. So since the um, EUA came out, Robbie Seeker has still been like a really great partner to the School of Public Health and to Saliva Direct and, you know, really great pillar of support and talking to people about testing and saliva testing and sort of pushing the conversation forward on also about test prices and making testing more accessible in general. Uh, just a couple of follow-ups because this is a pretty extraordinary story. Um, that's an email that one gets. Did you think that this was some kind of a, a hoax or something? Maybe what was your initial reaction to, to receiving that? I mean, it was a pandemic. I mean, I think at that point we were used to sort of bizarre things happening every single sure. day, many fires to put out. So, you know, the next thing you can email from the Timberwolves and the NBA wants to speak to you. It was a bit of a head scratcher. We were wondering where that was going to go. Um, but, you know, it, we were very used to sort of rolling it, sort of everything we've been hit with at that time. So, yeah. And just to go in on this a little bit more, the sample size you said, so this is more than just the players or is this multiple tests? Uh, it, it takes a lot of multiplication. You said 3,800 or 3,600. So this is everyone yeah. in the organization? No, so we only, um, you know, teams, it was more that the teams were able to enroll into the study or not. So I think mm -hmm. we were only getting samples from half of the teams, um, mm -hmm. but they were being tested every two days. So it was 3,800 samples in total from um, certain teams and also their associated staff members. I see. And I just will just follow up one more time on this. Um, the age profile there would be pretty narrow band, wouldn't it? Did, did, did you worry that you weren't capturing maybe a younger or older, um, you know, ends of the population band that might have some impact on the specificity and sensitivity of the test? Yes, it was pointed out when we went under peer review for publishing our results on this, how we were likely to be skewed towards a younger male population. Um, yeah. But we did Younger, have male, highly athletic, I mean, yeah, there's a particular not quite representative that we're going for, but I mean, yeah. I think this is also what the frustrations that Steph is dealing with with the hesitation of saliva in New Zealand is that in the end, saliva is saliva. Um, you know, of course, we need to test out our protocols on like the collection protocols, like the instructions for you know um, comprehension on different individuals, but you know, most saliva samples don't really differ between people or countries, so 
Yeah. Just to you know, take this one step further, Steph, let me bring you in on this. I mean, that to me really opens up this idea as if we want to scale up rapidly and provide mass testing possibilities, then this, you know, what was done in this work you did with the NBA really shows a lot of promise, I would think, for mass testing uh, using saliva. 100%. That's one of the main messages that we convey through our paper is that saliva can enable high accessibility in testing and expand testing. So following up on what Anne was saying about saliva enabling frequent testing. So first of all, saliva is inherently a more comfortable sample type. With the swab, it can be really invasive and uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I know here in New Zealand that a lot of people have not wanted to go for, for screening or COVID testing because of that invasive nature. And a lot of people find it uncomfortable. Whereas saliva, because it's a lot more easy, that already encourages a lot more people. And then two, the cost. So saliva is a lot cheaper because it doesn't require those specialized materials that you need to put swabs in. So a lot of people, after they take a swab, they'll put it in a vial of liquid to preserve it. But with saliva, that's not necessary. And then a cold storage, that can also require a lot of cost. And then specialized trained healthcare workers, all of that drives up the costs. And in terms of lab processing, you can cut the costs like what with Anne said about the RNA extraction process, which is cumbersome and costly. If you're able to eliminate that process, then that also drives down the costs. And so all these other factors that cut down the costs, even including the sample collection of drooling in a tube that takes barely any time, all of that factors in into driving the accessibility for not only our wealthy countries, but also low and middle income countries. And that really, in the end, is what's going to really ramp up mass testing efforts. Well, Orchid, let me bring you back on this. And any comment to what Steph's saying? And to me, I just would throw in there. I mean, it seems like a, there's a, this isn't just about finding a more sensitive test. There's a moral imperative here, I think. And we have this discussion about vaccination as well, to keep cost as low as possible when we're imagining that you know, millions or billions of people around the world are going to need to have this testing, and not just now, but ongoing. Yeah. Um, one thing she brought up is the whole coal chain, coal storage. That is pretty close to my heart because i from Barbados, tropical country. Um, finding, first off, getting reagent shipped to the Caribbean is actually very difficult. Um, shipping costs, brokers, etc. Um, and I know that that definitely stalled testing in the Caribbean as a whole. And so with Saliva Direct, as she said, we don't need any specialized tubes. Literally, we can use anything that most people have in a lab, a basic tube, sterile tube. Um, in some research that we're actually, I'm, I'm actually writing up at this point in time, we have actually formulated a, what would you call, choose your workflow situation, where initially with Saliva Direct, we, we collected the sample, we did an initial heat, um, we added protonase K and the heat inactivation step. And then from there on, you can use that sample for PCR. Normally, I guess I should explain, normally what you would have to do, you would get your sample from wherever it would arrive in the lab. Then you would have to do a RNA extraction 
and then the PCR, we totally, we totally removed that particular step. But we actually went one step further. Um, we don't actually need to add the proteinase K. And so all that is necessary is an initial heat inactivation or heat pretreatment step. And then you can go straight to PCR, which cuts down the cost even more. Getting reagents is difficult for a lot of the tropical countries, basically any of the less developed countries. And so that is why when I found out about Saliva Direct, I was very excited and was very happy to join this effort. I mean, just to underline this, and Steph, I want to bring you back on, on this question. I mean, this is pressing right now. I mean, there are countries that have climbing vaccination rates and decreasing infection rates where this might still be necessary, important to, to bring in. But there are countries right now, like India, with spiking mm -hmm. infection rates and low climbing, but still low vaccination rates. I mean, my sense in hearing your discussion is that you're going to need this kind of scale up of mass testing or pooled testing is is essential right now in many countries around the world. 100%. I completely agree with your statement that we have a moral imperative to support all of these countries because this pandemic is a global effort. And I understand for a lot of people, it's more urgent just to focus on your own country. But we don't heal from this pandemic until every country does. And so this global and international collaboration is of utmost urgency. And the vaccination inequities is incredibly shocking, as we've seen with low-income countries. I remember at the beginning of this year, nine out of 10 of them were pr predicted to not be vaccinated, whereas really wealthy countries, we're having people have more than one dose. Like some countries have five people, like people can be vaccinated five times essentially. And that obviously that disparity is incredibly shocking. And so we do really encourage the absolute necessity of testing alongside these vaccination efforts because we can't neglect testing. I think a lot of people commonly say, okay, so once you get vaccinated, you don't need testing anymore, right? But actually this testing is imperative for consistent monitoring and actually seeing how this vaccination will impact us because do we know for sure that we will prevent its transmission? We don't know. And we need to know about other variants and strains and testing is going to stay in our lives for a while because I think expecting herd immunity anytime soon or for the virus to go away anytime soon is quite the dream and ideal scope and scenario that we won't have right now. And so testing definitely remains important. And cost is one of the main issues. And we can definitely try to improve the sensitivity while keeping the cost down. And I think another argument that is commonly discussed, especially here in New Zealand, is, oh, but the nasopharyngeal swab, it seems to be more sensitive. But number one, a huge part of the paper that we all released together is that it depends on which live testing method you use. If you use one that's not going to deliver high sensitivity, of course, you're going to find a swap method that seems better. But if you're able to work well with saliva, absolutely, it can perform incredibly well. And it's been a lot of time spent trying to discuss that instead of time actually testing. And then you have all this missed opportunity where we could have actually just tested people, but instead none were tested. And that's so much worse. And cases have absolutely spread. So 
you know, this debate now, I think we, a lot of people have realized here in New Zealand that it's not necessary anymore. And they've realized if they test with this so-called really high sensitivity nasopharyngeal swab test every two weeks, that's going to miss cases than if you tested with an even slightly less saliva testing method, even just a couple of percentages lower. It, it's negligible if you test with that frequently and every two days, that's going to catch a case. Whereas testing every two weeks, you're going to miss it. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Orchid, Ali Cox, Steph Tan, and Ann Wiley today about saliva testing for COVID-19. I just want to pause here for a second and say what a pleasure it is to talk to gifted public health communicators. I mean, because the, Steph, even just now, the sort of economy with which you explain something which is really complicated, which is still something that public health officials need to be deciding at this time. Um, I wish we had more of that, and let me bring you in on that. If you want to comment on anything that Orchid or Steph was was saying, but also just bring you back in on this point that um, even in a, in the United States or in European countries where um, vaccination rates are going up rapidly, people still need to think that there's going to be COVID testing in their lives, right? They do indeed. So. Um, you know, we're especially working with a lot of different K-12 testing programs around the U.S., so testing those who are in schools. And, you know, a lot of what we're hearing at the moment is, you know, why do we need to still have testing programs if, yeah, vaccination rates are going up? And, well, first of all, here in the U.S., I mean, they're lucky enough that um, individuals over the age of 12 can now get the vaccine. But, of course, in, you know, there's still a lot of people younger than 12, and who knows what that's going to be like at the new start of the new school year. And, you know, I think there's been this sort of misconception over, you know, if we all think about how it started out, you know, this was a disease that affected the old and the sick and, oh, it doesn't do young people so much. And, you know, we're seeing more and more cases in younger individuals. We're seeing more and more cases of long COVID. We do not really know how this virus is going to affect people in the long run. This virus, um, you know, I saw calls recently that this shouldn't just be a respiratory virus, but look at its neurological complications, its um, complications with the heart, um, long COVID, you know, there's so much more at play here that, you know, we need to remain vigilant, especially for unvaccinated individuals, especially young children. So thinking about the new school year, why testing remains important. I mean, first of all, protecting those young children where, you know, you might see the virus reservoir shift to younger individuals who remain unvaccinated. But you can also use it as an early warning sign for what's going on in your community. So, you know, getting into the habit of having testing programs in schools, you'll detect outbreaks if anything's happening in the community, if there's any variants that we possibly need to be concerned about and whether, you know, how long is our you know, vaccine protection going to last? Are we going to see waning of our immune response that we need to be monitoring? And I think the really important thing going into the next school year here in the US, anyway, like thinking about seasons, is that um, we're going to be going into the autumn winter period where we typically have, uh, you know, the flu season, RSV. You know, we see so many more colds come up um, during that autumn winter season. So I think we're going to have to be 
thinking about, you know, if someone's presenting with flu-like symptoms, you know, symptoms of a cold, we're going to have to want testing in place to figure out, is this actually, is this COVID? Is this a variant we have to be worried about? Is this a vaccine breakthrough we have to be worried about? And if it is, how is that going to change our quarantine or our follow-up practices? Or is this, you know, a cold? Is it influenza, which, you know, is still not pleasant, but we're likely slightly better protected from? So I think, Going into communication, it's been so key in this, and I'm quite envious of uh, Steph's ability to communicate quite clearly. It doesn't come easy to all of us, but she does a phenomenal job, written and spoken. And I think, I mean, and I think you know the success that she's had in pushing the conversation forward in New Zealand is testament to that. Being able to sort of communicate these messages really clearly, and it's been a lesson for the rest of us about how important it is to try and relay our messages and continue to relay it just so it can reach everyone because when you've got the misinformation out there it's really hard to sort of get you know we're trying to get herd immunity at the moment but also just like a herd understanding of why these things are important and why you know we should still be looking out for each other and thinking about how our actions can still really influence those who are vulnerable around us. Something really important to me about what you said there too I'm thinking just of the United States in this case um, herd immunity is a term that I think got loose very early in the pandemic and doesn't usually mean what people think it means. And still, probably for a long time, there's going to be 30, 35, 40 percent of Americans who are not going to be vaccinated. And so just to underscore what you're talking about there, the importance of these uh, of tests more readily available, um, capacity for mass testing and to bring the cost down, all important features of that. But at the same time, I'm still wondering, you know, from a from just to say a little bit more about the cost perspective, are you able to, you know, if a if a school district comes to you and says, well, help us really understand what's the cost breakdown of using nasal pharyngeal swabs versus saliva tests? I'm not sure. Maybe Orchid, this is your question or anybody who wants to comment on it. Are you able to actually give a number? Can you get that specific so that people can say, well, this is what it would cost per person versus um, the more traditional tests that we've been using, or is it still not scaled up to the point at which you can give that kind of information to a potential consumer of a saliva test? I'm going to defer to Anne for this one because I know a few prices when it comes to the actual um, reagents, but to give an actual number, I think Anne would know. So we can give actual numbers. Um, or the numbers still vary. And what we've just been really trying to bring in is the conversation of test prices. So we highlight that with the reagents alone and often the bulk ordering discounts and, you know, um, frequent customer, you know, purchasing discounts that labs can get, the reagents themselves can cost about $1 per test. Um, we use this to identify like how cheap the base of it is, but we've been also really careful to highlight that, of course, you've got to have the costs involved of running the facility, the staff costs, um, collection costs, taxes, reporting costs. So it's not just $1, but, you know, sort of highlighting, you know, when many of these tests are out there that are $150, $100, that, you know, you're not expecting those markups to be that high. So in terms of schools or groups going to labs, I think, you know, they can ask about what the test is being run, but it does come down to the lab. 
We've had some labs tell us that their cost analyses place our test at anywhere between six and ten dollars, um, depending on what sort of um, also the infrastructure that they had to get up and running with, you know, in case there were sort of startup costs that they're trying to recoup as well. So we have had, um, you know, we've actually had one lab who offers saliva direct free to its community because the prices of the rest of the testing and what they're getting reimbursed from insurance sort of cover that. that. And I think it's been more. I think what's been more, more remarkable are the number of labs who just really fall in line with our public mission and they agree with us. And so there are, I mean, sadly, there are some labs who are charging $100, $150 for saliva direct out there. That is really frustrating to see, um, but I'm not allowed to <laughs> dictate prices on that. It's frustrating, but it's also because what they can get away with and what they can charge, but it's also been really inspiring to see the number of other labs who know how cheap this is they know what we're trying to do and they're also offering the test you know for ten dollars fifteen dollars a lot around the twenty twenty five dollar mark but um you know it's yeah it's hoping that you know it's been really good to see that those who are trying to make it more accessible to their local communities steph let me bring you back in on on this because your colleagues were mentioning your success uh in discussion with government officials and uh, early on actually well it was in the summer of last year actually wrote an email i sent a lot of emails inviting people to come on COVID calls i've invited the president of new zealand to come on COVID calls actually um <laughs> she, she has not been a guest yet i'm not giving up um but i got a i got a very kind email from her media team saying uh the president's a little busy right now um but there was this this was a response and you know, this is a, a podcast format, uh, and you know, I didn't expect to get any response at all. And and their response was was quite good response and quite encouraging. And I just thought I thought back to that often. I thought, boy, they are really on point. If they have a media team that can actually respond to requests from random college professors in the United States, so uh, that's where I was based at at that time. So I just wanted to throw that out there, and I guess follow up with you about this policy question. Uh, you know, we, we were just talking about cost. We talked about sort of making the scientific case. We're talking about making the, the case from the perspective of the patient. We've talked about perspective of uh, funding. But also, in terms of science policy, you know, if science policy leaders make a decision, well, a lot's going to flow from that. So, what are the impediments to making the case for saliva tests at the policy level? What are the mm -hmm. possibilities there? So main barriers in terms of policy implementation, we feel like New Zealand specifically, I'll talk about us first because I said earlier about how we have watched the world and how they've handled the pandemic before we could make decisions because we could just close our borders and say, okay, what is everyone else doing essentially? And sometimes with saliva, we've looked at our big brother, Australia, and they uh, they had their own saliva testing method and it had a lower sensitivity than what Anne developed Saliva Direct to have studies releasing 94% sensitivity, which is incredibly high. So Australia had an 87% efficacy saliva method and New Zealand looked at that and thought, oh my gosh, that's that's not great compared to the swab. That's scary because people had this perception that the swab would be 100% sensitive. But truth is, no method is 100%. So that was the issue of the whole framing of gold standard as only one sample type as the swab. And people looked at that and thought, okay, we're not going to put that into policy because 
research then wasn't sufficient enough to, well, not sufficient, there just wasn't enough research to show that frequent testing using saliva, even with an 87% method, would be incredible in detecting those cases. And so we first watched Australia and thought, okay, we're not going to do that. And then Australia decided, actually, there are people in our quarantine hotels who are completely refusing to get tested at all. Let's just give them a saliva test because they're actually going to want to do that. So they started doing that in Australia and then found that it was working really well. And then New Zealand finally looked at that and thought, okay, maybe we can do that too. And it definitely has been a struggle in terms of policy implementation, but as more research has, has emerged on the benefits of saliva and benefits of just testing frequently in general compared to not testing anyone at all, I think that obviously convey to a lot of politicians with more limited scientific literacy and understanding of the importance of it. And so in terms of policy making here, uh, yeah, definitely I threw myself into that scenario because at first I was attracted to the saliva testing research because I came across Anne's name and all her work and thought, this is incredible. Why don't we have this in New Zealand? And I started out with conversations saying, let's simply get this. And I was surprised to have come with a lot of drawback and hesitation and fear. And like you said, I'm really glad that the media team responded to you quickly because honestly, with New Zealand's small government, that is a huge benefit that you do get responses. And I was really fortunate and happy to be able to work with a lot of members in the Ministry of Health. And a lot of members were really open to speaking with me. And so that's how we were able to collaborate so smoothly at times. So being able to communicate all the research, sending them the data, they were definitely looking through that and said, okay, it's looking more convincing, but we still maybe have to just wait for other countries to do it. And <laughs> while it was such a waiting game, uh, this research institute that was governed by New Zealand, but still their own body, they decided it was a good idea to go forth with saliva after a lot of convincing. And then once they started looking at it themselves, they saw the clear benefits that people in quarantine hotels and just children and at the elderly, those who would be more resistant to an invasive sample type, they were definitely happy to be tested with saliva. And then private companies got on board with saliva testing. They thought, okay, if our public sector is a little bit slow with that, then maybe we can jump on that. And then policy-wise, it started to become more viable. As other countries started doing it, New Zealand thought, okay, this is something that we can do too. And following on the rhetoric of what Orchid was saying before about some countries really relying heavily on the WHO's word as godsend, that is really true. Same with New Zealand. We look at the WHO and we say, we have to follow that because that's just what we know. And I completely understand. In a global pandemic, innovation looks really terrifying because there are just so many risks associated with that, especially with government. It can be so scary developing policies. And of course, the fear of potentially missing cases and then that leading to worse scenarios. So I definitely understand the hesitation. And I did actually get a lot of insight from government members in terms of trying to develop policies and mandating saliva testing. That's an issue that's really difficult recently, but I've been told people will want to stick to a more traditional sense in terms of nasopharyngeal swab. And that's why a huge part of changing the title of our paper to saliva as a gold standard was just to change that narrative and say, there isn't just one gold standard, there can be more. There's so much in there to, to think about. And, and, and <laughs> I wanna just bring you in on this because you know policy, there are lots of different kinds of momentum um, that will impact the way that society responds to disaster. 
And as it's kind of a trope, but the, this idea that you're always sort of responding to the last disaster, you're always prepared for the last one and maybe not quite prepared to take in new ideas, new scientific evidence, or as you said, Steph, um, innovation can be scary in the middle of a pandemic. It's not the way we usually think about innovation. We tend to say, well, innovation will solve all of our problems. All we need to do is get a few scientists together and give them the money and we'll, we'll think our way out of this problem. But of course, that's not realism. That's not the way that science policy works. And it, what do you see as the roadblocks in the United States? I mean, here you had some success with a private, a large and well-funded private organization, but still only a small subset of the types of decision makers that you'd have to convince that this is the way to go. How do we begin to think about this in the US? I mean, I can understand the delays at first when, you know, there was emerging evidence on it. We're still responding to a pandemic. But, you know, I think as Steph was saying about New Zealand sort of learning from Australia and, you know, what others are sort of learning from each other is that we really need to like look at what everyone everywhere has been doing and learn from that. I mean, even South Korea, Japan, Germany have all had great um, the saliva testing programs as well. And, you know, it's not just us with Saliva Direct. Um, uh, UIUC has a fabulous uh, almost direct saliva PCR test as well. Um, Miramis Labs is doing incredible pooled saliva testing to get kids all throughout the Northeast um, back to school. And, um, you know, Curative over on the West Coast is, you know, doing incredible things with saliva testing as well. Is that there's more and more mounting evidence of how useful it can be. And I think our two major roadblocks are, first of all, working with labs. Again, if there's still that little bit of hesitation in labs um, about using a new sample type and the, you know, they're turning to the literature and seeing all this mixed messages coming out and they don't know where to start to get a good result. But we also do have to look at um, the regulatory bodies here in the US. You know, I mean, we've, you know, we've, I think we've jumped through hoops and others who are doing saliva testing have jumped through hoops with the FDA. You know, we've shown that our tests perform um, comparatively, um, but still there seems to be this hesitation towards saliva. And just as like, you know, the WHO only showing nasopharyngeal swabs and the CDC not really talking about saliva too much, we, know, we need to get more of these bodies um, on board because, one of the things is that, you know, we really have to necessarily, we don't, you know, I think there's also been just a lot of focus on clinical diagnostic testing. And this talk, speaking of going forward with more screening, surveillance testing, frequent repeat testing, we need to acknowledge that these things are also different and that there are different cycle types that can play roles in these as well. So, yeah, it's still slow progress at times, but I'm hoping that, you know, if we can all just, yeah, I mean, we're all going to be keeping working on towards this um, and that hopefully if we can just keep that messaging coming forward and we can just get more people on board. Then, you know, this, it's, you know, also Steph touched on this pandemic's far from over. There's so many other countries that would really benefit from our help, our guidance. Um, so, yeah, sorry. <laughs> just about to wrap up today in our discussion of saliva testing on COVID calls, I want to give each of my guests an opportunity just to um, bring in anything that we didn't discuss that we should have or tell us about the next phase of the work, some aspect of it that you're particularly excited about that we should be keeping our, our eye on. Orchid, let me ask you this question first. Um, I'll just touch on something that we might have missed. Um, one of the advantages of working with saliva also is that you don't need a, kind of, you don't need a trained professional meaning you don't need a healthcare worker, sorry. Um, we have actually brought out videos and well, we have brought out training materials 
to train ordinary people um, in sample, saliva sample collection. And we actually also just brought out an at-home testing kit because we observed that we don't actually need someone to observe you taking the sample. Once you give good enough instructions, anyone can do it from kids to adults to the elderly. Um, and so that is one of the major advantages of using saliva instead of nasopharyngeal swabs for testing. Thank you for that. I'm, and I'm glad that you made that important detail. We, we really kind of moved past it quickly earlier on. So thank you for that. Steph, same question to you. Anything else you, that we should have talked about that we didn't or where we're going forward with this work? Absolutely. I'll add one big message in terms of overcoming policy barriers and really making saliva a viable sample type that's used globally. So that would be the standardization of a saliva testing method. Because at the start of the pandemic, we had a ton of amazing innovation with the creation and development of saliva testing methods globally. We really saw it launch off in places like Japan. It's actually the normal in Japan to test with saliva. So that's been really amazing to see. However, one of the drawbacks of the creation of all these different saliva methods is that some of them have been really accurate while others haven't been. And that has actually created a lot of confusion and potentially led to government bodies not seeing saliva as a viable sample type because of this lack of standardization. So going forward, what we really want and what a big aim of our Lancet paper was, is to say that if researchers can collaborate globally to pick just a few really solid, robust methods that they can all use together and, of course, learn from each other as they use it, then there would be much more established ideas about what saliva testing is and how it should perform and have this consistency and sensitivity instead of all of this high and low sensitivity that we're seeing across different methods. That would really help us all to see how truly great saliva would be and then, of course, reduce any fear and hesitation in government and really implement it on a policy level. So that's my final message regarding that. But overall, thank you so much for having us as well. Absolutely. And Anne, anything you'd like to add or tell us what the, the next paper is? We promise not to tell anybody. Actually, we are going to tell people, but go ahead and tell us. <laughs> Um, well, actually, just to touch on something that um, relates to both what Orchid and Steph were just talking about, and that is we are currently working with a number of groups, a number of labs who are committed to assisting efforts in India right now. I mean, it was really, I mean, the situation over there is heartbreaking as it is, and it was also really hard to hear that, you know, at the moment, they're relying on nasopharyngeal swabs. They're relying on healthcare workers to take those swabs. And actually one of the biggest risks for exposure at the moment is actually everyone congregating in mass areas, lining up, waiting to get tested. And then these individuals are, you know, the swab causes irritation and it causes people to cough and sniff. Healthcare workers do not have adequate PPE and you're seeing high rates of infection and even death in healthcare workers in India at the moment. So we're trying to do what we can, sort of building on that standardization, being able to distribute, you know, robust methods. But, you know, saliva, if you can just sort of drop off a whole bunch of collection kits at a local community, have people take those kits into their home, provide samples, drop them back off, have a van take them to the lab to get tested. You know, again, if you're increasing compliance to testing, you're decreasing that exposure risk. I mean, these are the lessons that we've had the privilege to sort of observe and learn over the past year. But now I think it's our responsibility to pass these learnings forward. And 
you know, we do need coordinated messaging on that. And, you know, I think having saliva recognized as a sample type, having um, other sort of government bodies also recognize it, I think is really important because if this is something that can really help, um, you know, we're going to continue to see these cases surge. I mean, look at Southeast Asia at the moment as well. And if there's a role that saliva can play in helping to increase access to testing, which can help increase, you know, quarantine, help stop chains of transmission, help stop variants developing, then I think, you know, it's something that we all really need to work together on. It's a big week on COVID calls. Just to remind you that you can hear COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. The next COVID calls broadcast will actually be May 19th, which is today for me in South Korea, 5.30 p.m. today at Korea time, which is 9.30 a.m. Uh, UK time, um, which is 4.30 in the morning Eastern time in the U.S. If anybody's an early riser, please do join me uh, for my discussion with Andine Sherwood. And we're going to talk about long COVID. And we're going to talk particularly about long COVID SOS and advocacy for long COVID uh, sufferers in the UK as well as in the Netherlands. So please do join me for that discussion. And I just want to take a moment here to recognize the really um, encouraging and important research and thank my guests today, Orchid, Ali Cox, Steph Tan, and Ann Wiley for taking time to talk about saliva testing. Thanks to you all for this important work and for this time you've taken to explain it in such detail to a non-scientist like myself. No problem. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time.